Hello and welcome back to the Final Authority Podcast. I'm your host, Woody, and it's been a while. Uh, Today, I want to come back and I want to start a season, if you will, or I I guess a better word would be series, on a subject that doesn't get talked about very often in very many churches. And let me preface this by, by reminding you, this is the Final Authority Podcast, where I believe the Word of God is the final authority, that it contains all the answers, and uh, His Word should influence our every decision, our, our every thought, and every, it should influence every area of our lives. Uh, so the, the series that I'm going to embark on, starting with this one, um, is going to be political topics, politically charged topics, the things today that are all over the political arena but don't seem to be talked about in the church very often, and I want to look at them from a scriptural perspective and find out what does the Word of God say about this issue, about that issue. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about homosexuality, we're going to talk about borders, uh, the, you know, the border wall is a, a hot spot, we're going to talk about uh, marriage, we're going to talk about uh, voting, we're, we're going to talk about we're going to look at a whole host of issues that are fiery topics in the political arena that we don't often, at least personally, I don't often hear churches discussing these things. And if uh, I'll, I'll make the argument further, I'll flesh it out further in this episode, but if the church doesn't discuss it, then how are the people of the church going to know what's right? And, and theoretically, we should all be studying the Word of God ourselves and allowing the Holy Spirit to teach us, but in reality, less than 50% of so-called Christians read their Bible every day. So they're not going to get that. Uh, they're not going to get those answers from reading the Word of God. So uh, I want to cover some, some of these issues starting with this episode, and, uh, and we'll get right into it. The first question you really got to answer uh, embarking on a topic like this is, should the church be involved in politics at all? Should the Bible be used in political discussions? Uh, you know, is, isn't there a separation of church and state? Well, let's just look at it from the church's perspective, okay? Because there's a lot of pastors that think, well, we shouldn't talk about political stuff. Let's leave that outside the church. I'm just going to talk about the Bible. And, and that's, that's really a, a, a twisted statement because you can't talk about the Bible without talking about politics. Uh, and, and my argument for that is, first, the Pentateuch, uh, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They are called the books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the books of the law. That right there should be enough to dispel that argument. God gave us those first five books, gave them to Israel specifically, as their law book. This is how you live. This is how you govern your society, Israel. This, These are the laws I want you to obey. This is the structure. This is the foundation. This is the framing of your society. It's the law. And so saying that, saying that we shouldn't be involved in politics is, is begins to break down right there. But uh, following that, we have Joshua, Judges, the book of Judges. Judges is all about the judges that the Lord called to judge Israel based on their, their governmental missteps, based on their immorality as a nation. It was a governmental process. And then you've got prophets and king. The, the entire Old Testament is a political book. And, and that word politics has really been perverted in our day, so we don't often think of it in this respect. But but just look at Moses. In the book of Exodus, Moses went directly to the uh, 
parallel to our president, he went directly to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Moses acted as a judge in his day and judged the nation which was being unjust to God's people Israel. He had a direct influence and rebuked the leader of the nation of that day. Joseph, in Genesis 37 through 50, rose to, he, he gave advice to the highest power, Pharaoh, and then he rose to the second in command over all of Egypt, which was the greatest power in the world at that time. Ruth, we, we, we all know the phrase that uh, is in the book of Ruth, that she was born for such a time as this. Jonah announced judgment to the people or the nation or the government in Nineveh. Right, first and second Samuel were written by priests. Uh, Samuel wrote more than likely wrote the first, the first uh, book of Samuel. Nathan and Gad probably wrote the the second one about the life and accomplishments of the king David. He was the governmental figure, the authority of that day. Elijah is all about Elijah's. Uh, Elijah speaks to kings. He gives military advice. He gives ruling advice. He prophesies. He is directly in. He's right in the middle of the politics of the day. Elisha in 2 Kings is the same way. He tells secrets about battles and gives, gives advice. He is an ambassador to the king. He, all these people, all these heroes in our Old Testament were up to their necks in politics. And, and again, I think that word's been a little bit perverted and we get the wrong image today of what politics should be. And I'll get down into that a little bit further. But both books of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, chronicle the exploits of kings and leaders in Israel. Uh, these aren't these are history books, but they're not just history books, and they're examples for us to follow. The prophets all had influences and spoke to the government and the nation and the morality of the people in their day. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, they all spoke. Dan, excuse me, Daniel is all about the future kingdoms and world powers and governments which will come. I said already, Jonah spoke directly to a king. All the way down to Zechariah, the entire Old Testament is filled with God's people directly involved in their government, in their politics of that day. Psalm 113, 7, uh, 7 and 8 prophesies of a day when the poor will be raised up to sit with kings. And that day is today. We, the people, have the ability to influence our government. It used to be in that day that the kings made the judgments, the kings made the rules and the laws and the decrees. But here in America, in our day, since, since 1778, we... We have the authority as the people to elect our leaders who will represent our beliefs. We have the ability to create the laws, to influence the government of our, ourselves, of our people. Our government is by the people and for the people. And it's just a continuous flow from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The book of Proverbs is full of wisdom which is directed to rulers. There's all kinds of advice about making judgments, about kings, about governments, and also about daily life. But the book of Proverbs talks about taking, not taking bribes. It talks about justice. It talks about how when the wicked rule, the people mourn, and when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. 
there's there's so much in the Word of God that has to do with what we would call politics. And saying that the church shouldn't be involved in that is is a it's it's a tragedy. But you're saying, okay, well, you're only talking about the Old Testament so far. What about what about Jesus? What you you know our New Testament? We got to follow the you know we're we're, pat, we're not under that old covenant anymore. So what what did Jesus say? Well, first let's look at a, at a prophecy in Isaiah, chapter nine, verses six and seven. A prophecy about Jesus it says, "For unto us a child is born, to us a son shall be given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder." And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever and ever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So, even in the prophecies about Jesus, it says, The government shall be upon his shoulder, and of his government there shall be no end. So apparently he was supposed to be influential in the governing of his people. What did he say specifically himself? In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I say also to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now let's dissect that one a little bit. Because this is so misunderstood today by the majority of Christians, and, and I would wager even pastors. Matthew 16, 18. He's speaking to Peter. He's standing before what was in that day called the gates of hell. There's a cliff uh, near, near uh, I believe it's Galilee. And at the base of the cliff, there are these series of caves that they referred to as the gates of hell because there was a lot of demonic activity in that area. Uh, if I remember the my history correctly, nobody ever went in that did not come out influenced by some kind of demonic activity. They called it the gates of hell because they believed that was the entrance to the underworld. And it may have been a, a pagan tradition uh, and it may have had some spiritual uh, indication to it. But either way, they called that place the gates of hell. And Jesus is standing here and this is where he asked his disciples, who, who do the people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're, you know, you know you're Elijah. And, and he, he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the son of the living God. And he said to Peter, I say unto you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And he probably reached over and pointed and said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church. A lot of, especially the, in the Catholic tradition, uh, they believe that Peter, because Peter means rock, uh, he said, on this rock I will build my church. But the word for Peter, rock, and the word rock, rock, there are two different words for rocks. So that that's not what he was saying. He was saying, on this rock of revelation I will build my church. But that word church is what I really want to get to. You are Peter. On this rock I will build my church. The word church used there... Go look it up. It's the word Ecclesia. He did not use the word for temple. He did not use synagogue, which, which would be synagogue, which were both the, the religious uh, structures of the day. He used Ecclesia. Ecclesia is a Greek term. It's not churchy. It's not religious. It has to do with a gathering together of people to discuss in the Ecclesia, in, in the Greek and Roman days, they had two words over their meeting place, which were uh, 
I forget the words, but they were for freedom and liberty. They would meet in the ecclesia to discuss how to govern their communities so that there would be more freedom and liberty in their communities. So Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my ecclesia, my place where people will come together and decide how to govern themselves with, with freedom and liberty. And he put the revelation of Christ at the center of it all. The revelation that he is the son of God is supposed to be at the center of all of our government, of all of our governing decisions. Jesus expected us to be involved in our... Tell me, those who think that the church shouldn't be involved in politics, that preachers shouldn't talk about political matters, that the Bible doesn't belong in uh, government, tell me exactly what area did Jesus say that Christians are not supposed to be involved in and engaged in? Because if you start pulling one thing, it's like taking pages out of your Bible. You say, well, I don't believe that page. You rip it out. And well, you're going to start tearing other pages out. And if you can't believe that one, you can't believe this one. And eventually you're not going to have any Bible left. So what area did Jesus tell us not to be engaged in in our lives? Our marriage? I mean, if we're not supposed to be in, involved in, in our marriage, then we, we need to toss that page out of the Bible. Or he, he doesn't want to get involved in our financial decision. You know, God, God don't have anything to say about our finances. Really? Or, or, or maybe maybe it's our family decisions. Or maybe it's our job. No, he wants involved in every area of our lives. And the fact that we have segregated ourselves from speaking about issues in our government which directly affect us and our lives is a shame and a tragedy. And I, I believe a lot of it stems from a misrepresentation of the history of America. History not being taught correctly. Because who are we as Americans? Who is, who are we America? Because if, if you can answer that question, you can go back and see how the Word of God has influenced our very structure and our very foundation for our nation, our very constitution, our Declaration of Independence. Directly influenced by the Word of God. By Judeo-Christian values. There are people who debate this, but the history is written. And it's trying to be hid, so you got to do a little bit of digging to find it, but it's there. Here's the deal. The Puritan and Plymouth settlers built their community around the church. When they arrived at Plymouth Rock, we know if you know the story, hopefully you do, that they signed the Mayflower Compact before they got off the Mayflower. They they stayed on the ship. I, be, I, I don't remember... I believe it was for a week until they had established this compact and signed it before they got off the ship and touched dry land. And that, that Mayflower Compact, you can read it, it's an establishment. It's a, it's a covenant between the people and God that this is a city designed to be like Israel, a light on a hill, a city on a hill, a light to the world that we can rule ourselves by living the way God tells us to live. And I'm, I'm definitely generalizing and paraphrasing, but that's what it was. But the church was geographically at the center of the community, and they built out from the church. And there's a lot of history we could go into about, about the relationship between the spiritual and the geographical, because the further they built out from the church over the years, the more secular they became. And whenever a calamity would hit and they turned back to God, they would come back into the church or run back to God spiritually. 
and things will get better. And then they'd stretch out again, and, and it's kind of the same wave that the Israelites followed between the judges. They would come to God, and then they'd stray away from God and go through a calamity. They'd turn back to God, and our history is much the same way. But the Puritans and Plymouth settlers built their communities around the church. Jamestown didn't. I, I believe that we focus so much, so much on Jamestown in our secular schools because they don't want us to have that spiritual beginning, that spiritual birth at Plymouth. Because Jamestown failed. They had to try again. They had to pull out and try again because it was not built that way. It wasn't built around the church. They won't tell you that in school. Jamestown was not desirous. It was not built with a purpose to show the world the, the truth of God. And so it failed. But let's move a little bit further towards, towards the Declaration of Independence, towards the Constitution. What happened between Plymouth and the Constitution? Well, we had the great revivals. We had John Whitfield, John, Jonathan Edwards. We had John Wesley. All these guys influenced the culture as our churches are supposed to. And politics flows downstream from culture. So our churches are supposed to influence our communities, which changes our culture, which flows downstream and changes our politics, and then the righteous rule and the people rejoice. But in that day, in those days, pastors preached on the events and decisions to be made in our political sphere from a biblical perspective. Let me back up a little bit. The pastors of the day... For the Puritans, for the Plymouth settlers, uh, they were required. They were required by, you could say, community cons consensus to have a degree to be well educated. The pastor was supposed to be the center of the community, that the leader in not only spiritual matters but educational matters, philosophical matters. He was supposed to be well educated. And that's why Harvard and Yale were founded, to educate ministers and clergy. But they won't tell you that today. So these pastors were philosophers. They were well-educated, they were well-read, and they were well able to speak eloquently about the decisions and politics and policies of the day. And they preached on the events and decisions to be made from a biblical perspective. And we know this because most of them read their sermons. They wrote them down. No one who studies history truthfully can say that, that these men, these pastors, didn't influence our founding in a powerful way. And of course, it... it a major impact in changing the culture of the day was the great revivals from Jonathan Edwards to John Wesley. But even the founding fathers, being influenced by these pastors, of the 56 who signed the Declaration of Independence, 29 held seminary degrees. Now, let me clarify that. Again, I said Harvard and Yale, the two primary institutions of educational excellence of the day, were founded to educate clergy. But they weren't restricted to only clergy, but the Word of God was at the center of our collegiate education in those days. And so not all of the 29 who held seminary degrees were active ministers, but they had that influence and they had those beliefs. At the constitutional... Well, many people argue that, that our founding fathers were deists. And that's not true. 
Uh, they say the majority of them were deists. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, they talk about George Washington, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, that's not true. Let me, let, me, um, let me read an article here. And then I'll, I'll read a speech by Benjamin Franklin here in just a little bit. There's an article here that talks about three of our first presidents. We got Washington. Uh, the article actually discusses Washington, Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin. This article is... Were the Founders Religious uh, by PragerU? You can find the transcript. I believe it was an audio first. But here's what this author says. Because of their prominence, we'll discuss George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. Our nation's first, first three presidents and the man referred to the first as the first American. All of whom, even if some did not individually adhere to Orthodox Christianity, were steeped in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Here's what we can say for certain about their religious beliefs. All the founders believed in a transcendent God, that is, a creator who exists outside of nature. All the founders believed in a God who imposes moral obligations on human beings. All the founders believed in a God who punishes bad behavior and rewards good behavior in the afterlife. The notion that any of the founders believed in an impersonal deity who merely created the universe and then left it to itself is false. All of them believed in a God who, as Franklin said at the Constitutional Convention, governs in the affairs of men. So let's look at George Washington first. In his writings, public and private, they're full of reference to the Bible. This is certainly true during his eight years as the first president of the United States. Here is Washington at his first inaugural address, and I quote, The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right, which heaven itself has ordained. In all likelihood, Washington was an Orthodox Christian. Now, I've read some biographies of Washington, and, and I agree with that analysis. Uh, like Washington, Benjamin Franklin also referenced Bible verses, stories, and metaphors throughout his life. He called for prayer at the Constitutional Convention. I will read that speech. Um, Franklin, who had his own orth unorthodox views, summed up his faith this way. That the soul of man is immoral, sorry, immortal and will be treated with injustice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. While the religious views of Washington and Franklin are, cle are clear, those of John Adams and Jefferson are more complicated. Adams referred to himself as a Christian throughout his life, but did not believe in traditional Christian doctrines such as the Trinity or the divinity of Jesus. Nevertheless, before, during, and after his tenure as president, Adams repeatedly asserted his admiration for the Christian faith. And I quote, Those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God, he wrote. Likewise, Adams spoke of his great respect for the Bible. The Bible is the best book in the world. It contains more of my philosophy than all the libraries I have seen. Those who suggest that Adams was against religion like to quote from a letter he wrote to Thomas Jefferson in which he said, and I quote, This would be the best of all possible worlds if there was no religion in it. End quote. Unfortunately, those who cite this line never quote the lines that immediately follow, and I quote, But in this exclamation, I should have been as fanatical as, Without religion, this world would be something not fit to be mentioned in polite company. I mean, hell. End quote. So those who quote the first line without quoting the sub subsequent lines are either unaware of the full comment or are deliberately misleading people as to Adam's beliefs. <clears throat> Speaking of Jefferson, Jefferson said, as one of the leaders... Uh, of the American Jefferson said, All men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He wrote that in the Declaration of Independence. You can't get much more explicit in a statement of belief than that. 
These were practical men with a sober view of human nature. They understood that man is morally weak and that religion provides the best encouragement and incentive to be good. It does so by teaching that choices have consequences. And it's no surprise that in his second inaugural address, Jefferson asked for, and I quote, the favor of that being in whose hands we are who led our forefathers as Israel of old from their native land. That sounds pretty conclusive that he believed in God. Now, they all three, all four, had Judeo-Christian beliefs. They may not have all been Orthodox Christians, but they all believed in God. They all believed in an afterlife. They all believed in rewards for morality. So they weren't deists. They believed that God got involved. Now, uh, let me read the speech that Benjamin Franklin gave at the Constitutional Convention where he said it seems that God orders in the affairs of men. He, he gave this speech asking for prayer before the meeting because, well, he, he illustrates it. I'll just read it instead of, um, instead of trying to explain it. And I quote, this is Benjamin Franklin's speech before the Constitutional Convention. This was before they ratified the Constitution, before they came to an agreement about what it should say. He said, Mr. President, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks, close attendance, and continual reasonings with each other, our different sentiments on almost every question, several of the last producing as many nays as eyes, is, methinks, a melancholy proof of the imperfection of the human understanding. We indeed seem to feel our own want of political wisdom, since we've been running about in search of it. We have gone back to ancient history for models of government and examined the different forms of those republics which, having been formed with the seeds of their own dissolution, now no longer exist. And we have viewed modern states all around Europe, but find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understandings? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move, that henceforth prayers imploring, imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business, and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. 
Wow. That's the speech Benjamin Franklin gave. If after listening to that, you don't understand, he believed in the influence of God in the affairs of men. Then you weren't listening. Go back and listen to it again. Go look it up. They weren't they weren't deists. Maybe there were a few. But at least 29 of them had Judeo-Christian beliefs. Okay, so back to should the church be involved in politics? Should pastors talk about politics? Well, back at our founding, pastors preached on political matters. Now I told you we have their writings. They preached on everything, and we know this because they usually wrote their sermons and they read them out loud. And we have the transcripts. You can Google Black Robe Regiment. Uh, from the blackroberegiment.org website, here's a quote. The regiment had its historical beginnings during the Revolutionary War when pastors from across the colonies arose and led their congregations into the battle for freedom. Unlike today, the church during this time served as the center point for political debate and discussion on the relevant news of the day. Today's church leaders have all but lost that concept of leading their congregations in a godly manner in all aspects of their worldly existence. All aspects of their worldly existence. And are afraid to speak out against the progressive agenda that has dominated our political system for the past century. The, the Black Robe Regiment wasn't necessarily a military regiment of guys who wore black robes into battle. This was the pastors who spoke out on political issues during that time. You can, you can also go to nationalblackrobregiment.com and you can read sermon transcripts. Uh, I recommend you read one from William Gordon from July 19, 1775. This is a, a sermon he preached to the House of Representatives. July 19, 1775. This is <laughs> almost a year before the Declaration of Independence. These guys influenced the founders and the founding of our nation. Our founders may not have been Christians per se in the way that we understand the word today, but they had a tremendous respect for the clergy, for the Lord, and the philosophy of Judeo-Christian values and scripture. They had preachers in the House of Representatives. They had preachers come and open them with prayer every day. And this guy Gordon, he didn't pull any punches. You go read that sermon. I'm not going to read it because it's long. But you go read that sermon. He didn't pull any punches. He preached the word, and he showed them how they were sidestepping from what God said was right. And he implored them to get back to God's side. Prayer meetings were the norm in our founding. They acknowledged the hand of God. The people, not just the signers of the Declaration, not just the members of the Constitutional Convention, but the people as a, as a community, as a body, as our nation in that day, were very aware of the hand of God in blessing and in judgment when there were calamities. And they would turn to God and turn to the pastors and say, what is going on? What do we see from Scripture that parallels what we're seeing today? And again, I said the pastors were very well educated. They were, they were well read. They were not just spiritual leaders, but they were philosophical leaders. They were influencers in that day. And I believe we've stepped away from that. And part of that is because of the Johnson Amendment, which some have taken to mean that the church should not uh, preach on political issues. Really, what the Johnson Amendment says is that a nonprofit organization is not allowed to endorse a, a political candidate. 
uh, but it has been threatened to be used against churches. So a lot of pastors just said, well, I'm not touching that. I don't want to get sued, and so I'm going to be quiet. And that's the wrong response. Jesus did not give us any area of life that we're to stay out of, that the Word of God is not relevant in. Politics is no exception. So, so Jesus himself confronted the political leaders of his day. Right? The scribes and Pharisees, uh, the, the Sadducees, they would, ha they would have been the, the religious and political leaders because they were the ones in direct contact with the Roman government. In, in negotiations with the Ro Roman government leaders, they were the political leaders of the day. And Jesus confronted them and called them snakes. Right? Serpents. Hypocrites. He, he confronted them about their theology. About their governing. The church must be involved in our political system. And I don't mean that pastors ought to necessarily run for political office, although there's some that, that may be called to that. But we need to speak out. We need to stand for righteousness because we're the only hope for the future of America. The church is the only source of righteousness because the Word of God is the only source of righteousness and wisdom. And if when the righteous rule, the people rejoice... The only source of righteousness is the Word of God and a relationship with Jesus Christ. And how can people hear that unless we are preaching it? How can people know that the righteous decision in this particular uh, bill before the, the Congress is such and such if we don't look at the Word and say, here's what God would have us do. So here is what we need to write our representatives and call our representatives and email our reps and tell them this is where we stand on this. We're the only ones who have the love of God in us and are able to tell the truth and speak the truth with wisdom and love. We cannot be silent. People can't behave righteously unless they know what righteousness is. And that's why the church is so important. And right now the church is the only place in America that I see that, that darkness has not infiltrated and taken over. Our schools have been infiltrated by this, this darkness. Our colleges, our political system, it's, it's all been infiltrated, but we still have the church. So we need to stand. We need to speak. So I'm going to be talking about issues in the next few episodes. Um, we'll talk about borders. We'll talk about homosexuality. We'll talk about where the Bible stands on sex and, and education and all kinds of topics that are supposedly taboo in religious circles, but, you know, I'm not in a church. I'm recording a podcast, and you ain't got to listen if you don't want to. Uh, but we're going to talk about these things and what the Bible says about these things, what God says, and uh, comparing the two parties, comparing the Democrat Party and the Republican Party and where they stand versus what the Word of God is. And we'll see which one stands uh, up to the truth and makes it through the fire of the righteous word of God. The word of God is the only source of morality, of righteousness, of wisdom. I'll finish with a quote from John Adams. John Adams said, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And that's what we're seeing today. Our Constitution is inadequate to govern a people who do not recognize God and morality. And I don't like the word religion, but we'll say religion. 
Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. That is why we must speak up and speak out. This has been the Final Authority Podcast. I'll catch you next time.